Amen. Amen. Love the singing. Love hearing the voices ring out in praise to the King who reigns forevermore. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church, Gainesville. I hope this fine Lord's Day morning finds you encouraged in our Lord. You know, as Christians living in this dark world, we need to stay encouraged in the Lord. Many, fi- many times we find ourselves, uh, this has been a little bit of a theme this morning, um, as I prayed and even in the men's class, uh, we, we talked a little bit about trials and difficulties. And, and Lord, I guess it's, it's on my heart. Many times we find ourselves walking along the difficult paths in life. As we pass through this world, as Christians, we're just passing through, yet we may suffer great pain. We probably will suffer great pain because this world is full of pain. We may suffer the loss of loved ones. Most of us will in time suffer the loss of loved ones and of friends. I know that some of you have, have suffered in that way. You've lost those you know and love. And I'm sure as time goes on, it happens because we live in a, de- in a world full of death and sorrow. You may even uh, you may suffer through a decline in personal health. I know that there have been challenges to some of you, and there have been challenges to myself. Um, and many times you will suffer through the, the, health of the, the declining health of loved ones. And some of you may suffer through intense financial problems. Um, you know, there's things that happen in life, things that occur out, that are out of our control, whether it be the loss of a job or whether it be uh, just a tax bill that comes in that you don't expect, whatever it is, a, a car repair. Uh, we're going to, at times, because we live in a world that, that these things happen, we're going to have those, those problems. Some of us, and many of us, have uh, suffered through searing rejection by family and friends. Just they, they see your faith and they don't, they don't like it. They think you have sold out, if you will. That you're different than them and you, your life may be his judgment to them. And so they reject you. And if it isn't an outright rejection, many times it's a soft rejection. We put up with you, on, you know, when we have to, but we don't want you around any other time. Some of us have suffered with children's who've walked away from the faith or are walking away from the faith. It's a great difficulty. And as you know, there are a myriad of other thorns and thistles of this fallen world. Uh, The longer you live in this world, the longer you're here, the more you see it. And the list of hurts can seem endless. But here's the truth. Here's the truth, that God gives us trials to grow us in our faith. These trials reveal and strengthen authentic faith. This was the Apostle Peter's point in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says if we are truly in Christ, then we are protected by the power of God through faith. We can be assured of our salvation in Christ, therefore we can rejoice even as we endure trials. 
Our faith in Jesus grows as God protects us by His power as we await deliverance from this present world. That's 1 Peter 1, 5-7. Our Lord knows, beloved, our Lord knows, and I want you to know that our Lord knows that we need constant encouragement as we live in this world with all its various difficulties. We, he, gives us, he gives us other believers. He gives us the, the church because He knows that we need constant encouragement as we live through this world. And He gives us the church then as a source of encouragement, though many times we may fail one another. Many times we fail. Yet, Yet as a church, we are to encourage one another and draw near to one another when we are struggling. And even though we may fail one another as a church, as the church, the Lord warns us not to pull away from the church when we're struggling. That's the point of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews exhorts his readers to, to say, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the truth. The danger of the world is real and ever-present. I believe that's why the Bible is full of encouragement to the saints. Let me give you a few examples to encourage your heart this morning. I don't know what anything you may be going through. I don't know. I mean, I know a few things, obviously, because you tell me. But I, I don't know everything. But the Lord does know. And He gives us Scripture. He gives us Scripture to encourage our hearts. In Deuteronomy 31.8, Moses encouraged God's people Israel as they were uh, poised to enter the promised land. He says this, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now you may say, well, that's, that's for Israel. But I, he, we serve the same Lord. Joshua 1.9 Yahweh encouraged Joshua in the same way. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But that's a promise that we, can, that we can believe in. David, King David ended Psalm 31, 24 with the following line, and he says, Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you hope in, who hope in the Lord. As you face trials, and as you face difficulties in this life, you can, you can trust in the Lord, you can take courage, and you can hope in Him. Prophet Isaiah gives this beautiful promise in Isaiah 40, 31. He, said, yet, he says, Yet those who wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, will gain new strength. They will mount up with e wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Follows that up with this amazing promise in Isaiah 43, 2. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 
In Romans 8.31, he told the church at Rome, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Follows that up with this incredible question in Romans 8.35. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just listen to Paul's amazing and incredibly encouraging answer in Romans 8.39. 38 and 39. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, if you are in Christ, if you're walking in Christ, if you are in Christ, if your faith is a true faith, here's a promise that you can believe. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So here's the simple answer. Not easy, I didn't say easy. Simple answer to the trials and difficulties in this, of life in this sin-filled and fallen world. Persevere in Christ and draw near to Him. That's the answer. James captures this beautifully in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Beloved, if you find yourself struggling with your faith, I encourage you to draw near to God and to remember His faithfulness. Even His past faithfulness. If you are in Christ, you can look back and you can see the past faithfulness of our Lord and you can be assured that He will remain faithful. James Montgomery Boyce says this, There is a proper use of memory in times when we are depressed. Remembering God's past acts as an encouragement to believe that He will, He will, He will, He will, He will in fact act for us again. End quote. I added the extra flourish. As you may know, as you may realize this morning, we're continuing our deep dive into the story of the Magi in Matthew 2. And today we're going to consider Jesus' parents. We're going to consider his parents. His parents, Joseph and Mary, exemplified what it means to live by faith. They, they exemplified it. They exemplify what it means to, to live by faith as they walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, they literally were walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Herod was out to kill Jesus, and he would have done so. And they faithfully believed Jesus or believed God's promises, and they did what they were supposed to do. They obeyed him. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Heavenly Father, this morning as we consider this, continue to consider this story of Joseph and Mary, Lord, my heart goes out to those who are struggling. Father, those who are 
turning away from the faith, maybe even feeling alone, feeling desperate, depressed, struggling with whatever trial that they're struggling with. Father, I pray if there's any encouragement in Christ, that they would be encouraged in You. Lord, I pray that they would draw near to You and trust the promise that You will draw near to them. Father, I pray that You would use Your body to come alongside those who are struggling. And this morning, as we consider the story of Joseph and Mary, may we look at their faithfulness and understand that, Lord, You will protect us. And You will, as we see, we'll see this morning, You will follow through on Your promises. You will fulfill all that You've said. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, let's pick up in the text in Matthew 2, starting in verse... 13. <clears throat> Matthew 2:13. Now when they had departed, behold, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, "Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him." So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod, in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son, or I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which had, he had carefully determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted, because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother. And go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he had heard, but when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, the, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now as we have studied this unique account of the Gentile Magi who have traveled from the east to visit Jesus, we have, as I have mentioned, seen four typical responses to King Jesus. Now I would argue that these responses are typical even in our day. In this account the Gentile, of the Gentile Magi, he gives four responses. One would be, uh, or the question would be, are you responding like, first, the unwelcome and worshipful Magi? Second, are you responding like the unhappy and wicked King Herod? 
Third, are you responding like the unworthy and worthless religious leaders? Or fourth, are you responding like the uncompromising and withstanding parents of uh, the Lord Jesus? Now, over the past three few weeks, we have studied the first three responses, and let's quickly, very quickly review them. Now, as you may recall, the Lord was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is just a few miles south of Jerusalem, where King Herod and Israel's religious leaders were headquartered. Now, it says that he was born, that Jesus, again, was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Matthew tells us that Magi from the east arrived in, ta- in town in, in Jerusalem looking for the one, uh, one born king of the Jews. They had seen his star in the east and had followed it to Jerusalem. Therefore, they came to uh, worship him. Now, these Magi, we, we saw, probably descended from Magi during Daniel's day who learned about the one true God from Daniel during the Babylonian exile. After discussing the the king's birth with Herod, they went on their way and the star reappeared to them so that they found the place where the child was. And it says, the text says in verse 10, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And when they arrived at the house where Jesus was at, they worshipped him and presented him and his family with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now after this, they were warned by God to not to return to Herod, so they left for their own country by another way. That's verse 12. Now these Gentiles responded to King Jesus, and we saw uh, very clearly they responded to King Jesus by worshiping him. In the words of one commentator, he says, despite the, their pagan background and powerful influence in, ba- in the Babylonian and Persian courts, the Magi recognize and worship the Christ child for who he is. That's amazing if you think about it. These Gentiles are worshiping the Lord Jesus. They responded in faith to what God had revealed to them about himself and the coming Lord Jesus. Now we can see then that the Magi's response was one of faith and obedience. Now let's look at the second response. Let's review the second response. The question is, are you responding like the unhappy, unhinged, and very wicked King Herod? Now look back at your text in 2.1. It says that this all occurred in the days of Herod the king. Now when the Magi rolled into town, uh, the squatter king, if you will, King Herod, was not happy at all. Matthew 2.3 says that he, was, uh, that he was unsettled or he was troubled. Uh, in other words, he was disturbed. In the modern vernacular, you may say that he was spun up about it. But that would be an understatement. Let's just say that he was threatened by the prospect of the true king, the one true king, being born during his reign as the faux king, the false king. So Herod did what any double-minded man might do, any evil double-minded man who who wants to hold his power. He said he called, the, he called the religious leaders to determine where this king was to be born, and they told him that the, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Then he secretly called the Magi, I mean, he's double-minded, right? He secretly called the Magi and determined from them the time the star appeared. And he lied to them, saying that he wanted to worship Jesus as well. Then he sent them to Bethlehem to search for Jesus and to report back to him. Now, I want to give you a little nugget. <clears throat> it's funny that we do these reviews. They're as much for me as they are for you, truthfully, because uh, sometimes I see things that I, don't always, that I don't see in my original study. But let me, let me give you a little nugget I saw as I was preparing for this sermon. In Matthew 2, 2 verse 2, Matthew tells us that the Magi saw his star in the east. So they followed the star to Jerusalem and began inquiring about the king. 
Then Herod gathered the religious leaders who told him the exact location of the Messiah's birth. Now, here's what I want you to see. The Magi continued to Bethlehem because the king and the religious leaders told him where to go, or told them where to go. Now, notice in Matthew 2, 9, the Magi left King Herod after hearing him, and they went on their way. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going before them until, until the, it came and stood over the place where the child was. Here's the point. Even in their treachery, even in their treachery, King Herod and the religious leaders, God used them sovereignly for His purposes and for His glory. I mean, we have to see that, that our, our God uses even evil men and women. In this case, King Herod and the religious leaders. Beloved, I hope you see that that's God's sovereignty on, on display. Now, skipping down to verse 16, we see the full wickedness of King Herod on display. He had... And when he found that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged and, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. Now, two years and under, that is. Now, beloved, you see, King Herod completely rejected King Jesus. Completely rejected the, the true king. Herod's response then was one of wickedness and treachery. Wickedness and treachery. The question is, is that how you respond to the King, king Jesus? You see, Herod saw Jesus, or Jesus as a threat to his position, a threat to his power. Therefore, he wickedly responded by doing everything in his power to destroy the true king. Yet God used even this wicked man for his purposes and his glory. Let's quickly review the third response. Are you responding like the unworthy and worthless Jewish leadership? And I can tell you right now that as Christians, those who call themselves Christians, this is probably the one that, that hits closer to home. During the last sermon, we studied the various groups of Jewish leaders. And in Matthew 2.4, Matthew tells us that Herod gathered the chief priests and the scribes of the people. We learned that, that all the Jewish priests came from the tribe of, of Levi and were descendants from the first high priest, Aaron. The high priest was supposed to serve for, for life, and, and he was to be first among the, the priests. His chief duty was to enter in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice for all the people. But over time, that office, the office of the high priest, had become politicized. It had become corrupt and could even be purchased by a price. And the, the rulers came to be able to even appoint and remove them at their pleasure. And as a consequence, several, consequence, several chief priests could be living at the same time. Now, I think we can see the chief priests and the scribes then. You, can, you could call them the wise men of Israel. In other words, you could call them the magi of Israel. So we see them juxtaposed with the Gentile magi. You have these, these wise men of Israel. And truly, truly, these wise men of Israel should have been the first to recognize the arrival of the king, but yet they weren't. According to the Apostle Paul, the, the Israelites were given the adoption as sons. They were given the covenants. They were given the law. They were given the promises of God. Yet what we see here is that the chief priests were, to be, were supposed to be holy men, yet they were corrupted beyond belief. So in God's judgment, you have the Gentile magi that recognize the true king. You see, these chief priests, they still had the religious trappings, but they were hypocrites. 
Later in Matthew 23, 27, Jesus warns them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead man's bones and, and all uncleanness. Beloved, I believe that God judged the Jewish leadership when He caused the star to appear the Gentile Magi. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the desires of the Gentile Magi to worship the Messiah stands out against the apathy of the leaders who did not apparently take the trouble to even go to Bethlehem. I want you to bear in mind, and we saw this last time, that Bethlehem was only five or six miles from Jerusalem. Yet they refused to go. The Magi traveled many, many miles to arrive in Bethlehem. Meanwhile, the unworthy and worthless Jewish leadership was unwilling to even go five miles to worship King Jesus. So, we saw that the Jewish leadership responded with apathy, with selfishness, and with compromise. And beloved, I can tell you, when you look at the church, it's full of apathy, selfishness, and compromise. Now, I'm not saying that about you, but I want you to, to assess yourself because that is what's happening here. These men, these chief priests, and these scribes cared for themselves more than they cared for the king. They loved themselves more than they loved God. Now let's look at the fourth and final response. Are you responding like the uncompromising and withstanding Joseph and Mary. Look down at your text in verse 13. Around the time the Magi departed from Jesus' family, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he commanded Joseph to get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now we've already seen Herod's wickedness. So we, can, we know that this is a very real threat to Jesus, Israel's Messiah. And in God's providence, He sent them to Egypt. And Egypt, though, had, in history had become a great place, a, a great choice of a place to, to flee. It was nearby, just to the south of Israel in Bethlehem. They, there were well-used trade routes that would have made travel a little bit easier. At this time, Egypt was a, a well-ordered Roman province, and, and more importantly, Egypt was the area of Egypt was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Alexander had established a sanctuary for the Jews in Alexandria during the period of Greek rule of the Mediterranean world, so, so during the intertestament period. So uh, this place was a, a great place for Jews to go. And, and Alexandria specifically was still considered a sanctuary for the Jews during the time of Christ. According to a Jewish historian who wrote around A.D. 40, Egypt's population at the time included one million Jews. So Jesus and his family would have been protected by God while they were there. Now, this account may remind you, we're going we're gonna to do some exploration in the Old Testament today because of uh, a couple of the quotes, but this particular account may remind you of the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 through 50. You may recall that Joseph was the son of Jacob. He was taken into slavery in Egypt after being betrayed by his brothers. Now, while in Egypt, Joseph had risen to become uh, second only to Pharaoh through a series of providential events in his life. 
And perhaps the most important event, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, showing him that there would be seven years of great famine in the land after seven years of abundance. Joseph convinced Pharaoh to allow him to store up food during those years of abundance to prepare for the famine. Now, during the famine, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the land as well as food distribution. So, during that time, Joseph's father and his, his father Jacob and his family, Joseph's family, lived in Israel. Now, when the famine came to the land, as Joseph predicted, Jacob was forced to send his sons, his other sons, to Egypt to seek food. Now, after a lengthy interaction between Joseph and his brothers, Jacob, who was also named Israel, went down to Egypt with his sons to stay with Joseph. Consequently, now I'm just giving the high points of the story, consequently, Israel, the nation, sojourned in Egypt where God protected them as they grew and as they flourished. And after 400 years, God called Israel out of the land of Egypt and sent them into the promised land. Now, here's the question. Oh, well, here's the, here's the, here's the connection. Over 1,500 years later, God called Joseph and Mary to take Jesus, God's son, to Egypt to protect him. Now, that's an obvious parallel to, the, to Israel's story in, in uh, Genesis 37-50. Now, look at Matthew 2.14. It says, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, I want you to note Joseph's obedience. Joseph didn't compromise. He didn't compromise. He was uncompromising, if you will. Unlike the, unlike the Jewish leadership who compromised, Joseph, Joseph obeyed. Joseph did what God said, and he, he immediately obeyed. Joseph got up and departed for Egypt. Now, look at your text. Look at your text in Matthew 2. He, he, he got up. While it was still night. So after receiving the message from the angel, if I read the text right, Joseph didn't even dare to even wait around until it was morning, you know, to get everything ready. He didn't do that. He got up and he left with Mary and Jesus. You see, Joseph and Mary had rejoiced at the Magi's visit, but their rejoicing wouldn't last. They didn't have time for it. The angel had come with an urgent message. The child, Jesus, was in grave danger. So Joseph immediately obeyed by taking Mary and Jesus and departing for Egypt. You see, Joseph would not compromise. And he would not, he would not compromise and endanger Jesus' life. He was willing to withstand the tribulations of a, of a trip to Egypt to protect Jesus from the wicked King Herod and to obey God's commands. Now, just as a side note, it's interesting the timing of this. Now, according to, this is according to several commentators. It seems reasonable that Joseph would have used the valuable gifts to the Magi, of the Magi, from the Magi, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, to pay for the trip to Egypt and to stay there. So, you know, almost immediately the, the, the Magi came with these gifts, and then we see G, uh, Joseph getting up with Mary and taking off to Egypt, and, and likely he would have used those gifts in order to finance that trip. As always, God provided everything for Joseph and Mary. They had exactly what they needed. I mean, that's, I mean, think about that. I mean, think about what I just said earlier about trials and difficulties. God provides everything we need. He does that for His children. He wants us to trust Him for our provisions. 
or His provisions. And when we do, God will never fail us. He provides all that we need. Now look at Matthew 2.15. And He remained there until the death of Herod in order to in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Now it is likely that Joseph and Mary and Jesus only stayed in Egypt for a few months since Herod was very close to to death at that point. According to Matthew, God sent Jesus to Egypt to protect him, but I think there was an even greater reason here. The primary reason for the family's flight to and sojourn in Egypt was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Hosea. Now, if you read through commentators, they debate as to what it means to fulfill Hosea's prophecy and from Hosea 11.1. I mean, there's been tons of ink spilled on this because it seems to be so out out of the blue, if you will. So what I want to do is I want you to turn, if you'd like, to Hosea 11. Now, I want to encourage you here. I, I, this will be some heavy lifting. But I, if you stick with me, I think it'll be a blessing. Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, over 700 years earlier, God had told Hosea that out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the reference to my son in the book of Hosea is to the nation Israel. For Hosea, this was a a historical statement about what God had done in delivering his people from bondage under Pharaoh. Now, as I said earlier, God called Israel out, as we, we saw earlier, as I give you the, gave you the quick recounting of the story, God called Israel from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Now, commentators, again, debate how the Exodus, which occurred 700 years before Hosea and 1,400 years before Jesus' birth, how, that, uh, is, how those two things are prophetically tied to Jesus' departure from, or to go, going to Egypt and then coming back out. How those things, how Hosea's prophecy is tied with that. Now, I think I, I, we need to take a few minutes to better understand Matthew's statement in Matthew two fifteen because I think there is an answer. Now, let me give you the theme and setting of Hosea. The theme of Hosea is God's loyal love for His covenant people despite their idolatry. Now, the prophet Hosea began ministering during the day, the final days of Jeroboam the second. Under his leadership, the nation enjoyed political and material prosperity, but they were completely morally corrupt. They were morally corrupt to the core, and they were spiritually bankrupt. Now, when Jeroboam II died, Israel declined rapidly both politically and materially. The years after uh, his death, after the king's death, culminated in Israel's overthrow by Assyria. Now, during that dark period from Jeroboam II to the overthrow of Assyria, four of, of Israel's six kings were assassinated by their successors. I mean, that's how bad it was. By God's providence, Hosea prophesied during those dark times. Now, as a prophet, Hosea focused on Israel's moral failures. The nation had broken their covenant relation, the covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Now, 
remember that word covenantal or, or covenant because it's very important. It's going to be, you're going to see it's, that's the connection that we're going to see into Matthew. Therefore, God's judgment on them was imminent. God's judgment on them was imminent because they had broken their relationship, their covenant relationship. Now, the book of Hosea itself is shocking because it vividly portrays, I'm talking vividly portrays uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. The Lord portrays their unfaithfulness using vivid and even graphic imagery of Hosea's wife, Gomer. He used her unfaithfulness to the prophet Hosea as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. You see, Gomer was a prostitute. She was a prostitute who went after other men. On the other hand, Israel was a spiritual prostitute. God's chosen people had gone unashamedly after false gods. Now, obviously, because Gomer or because Hosea loved Gomer, Gomer's behavior grieved him. Yet he continued in his love for his wife and did all that he could to win her back. Sadly, Gomer ended up as a slave, probably even a sex slave, when God commanded Hosea to redeem her. Look at Hosea 3.1. Hosea 3.1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves, Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Here you see the, the parallel. The parallel of Hosea's love for Gomer and God's love for Israel. Now look at 3.2, Hosea 3.2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. So Hosea redeemed her. Hosea redeemed. He bought her back. He bought Gomer back. She had done shameful things. She, yet Hosea redeemed her and brought her back to their home. He made her his wife again and continued to love her despite her obvious failings. In other words, Hosea kept his marriage covenant. Again, remember this word covenant. He kept his marriage covenant even though Hosea so shamefully broke it. In the same way, God kept his covenant with sinful, the sinful wayward nation of Israel. Look down at Hosea 11, 3 and 4, which tells us how God taught Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. He taught them to walk. He carried them in his arms and he healed them. He loved them. And he bore their burdens. Now, look back at 11.1, where we see this verse that Matthew quotes in Matthew 2. It says that, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what we know is that God called Israel out of Egypt to show his steadfast faithfulness and love toward them. We know that. Yet they were unfaithful to him. Despite all that they had done, and, and prostituting themselves before other gods. They had truly played the harlot. Despite all of that, God promised to remain faithful to His covenant. He would not, and let me just say, let me reiterate, He will not go back on His promises to them. Yes, yes, they would be exiled. Yes, they would suffer His rebuke and judgment for their sin. But he would not go back on his promises. 
And as I just said in Hosea 11, 1, he reminded them he had called them out of Egypt to show his steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, back in Matthew 2, Matthew quotes the ending of Hosea 11:1. 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. Here's what he's doing. When he does this, he, pr- he applies this promise to Jesus, Israel's Messiah. Now here's the question. In what way is Matthew applying this verse to, to Jesus? I would argue that Matthew is showing that Jesus, as God's greater son, is the promised messianic king who would ultimately deliver God's people. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew is arguing that as Israel's Messiah, Jesus' flight to and from Egypt points to God's covenant faithfulness to His people. As their Messiah and King, Jesus would be the ultimate deliverer of God's people. Now, by applying this verse to Jesus, I believe that Matthew is arguing that God's covenant promises would be, will be fulfilled through Jesus, Israel's Messiah. And there may be an even deeper implication here. When Moses led Israel out of Egypt, in a very real way, Jesus came out of Egypt as well. As we saw in Matthew 1, Jesus descended from Abraham and Judah. And in the words of John MacArthur, he says, as, as Matthew has already shown, Jesus descended from Abraham and from the royal line of David. Had Israel perished in Egypt or in the wilderness or in any other way, the Messiah could not himself have come out of Egypt or even been born, end quote. Again, we see God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He would protect his people and would protect his son who would become their ultimate deliverer. Now, I believe we'll see this connection even more vividly as we consider the next few verses of Matthew 2. And I want to help you see that connection. If you would turn back to Matthew 2.16. Then, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. We saw this earlier. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. Now look down at verses 17 and 18. Matthew says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now here, Matthew, again, this is heavy lifting, so please follow me. Don't, Don't... Give up on me. Here, Matthew is quoting Jeremiah 31, 15. There's gold here, I promise. Now, you are welcome, if you want, to turn there. As you do, I want to give you some some background to the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah's ministry was mostly to Judah, his people. He spent most of his ministry urging Judah to repent and avoid God's judgment through the Babylonians. His main theme is judgment upon Judah followed by restoration during the future messianic kingdom. As Jeremiah's ministry progressed, God's impending judgment became so imminent, or it became imminent, so he urged them not to resist God's hand. Now in Jeremiah 31, 2-14, Jeremiah describes 
the conditions of the future messianic kingdom. Just listen as I read Jeremiah 31, 10 through 14. It says this, hear, hear the word of the Lord, or hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare in the coastlands, coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For Yahweh has promised Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. Then listen to this. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will radiate over the bounty of Yahweh, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and over the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden and they, they will never languish again. Then, then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn, this is key here, by the way, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill their soul, the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So what Jeremiah is doing is he's describing a time when God will gather His people and there will be great rejoicing and celebration. Uh, Israel's mourning will be turned to great joy. Now let's read Jeremiah 31.15. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comfort for, comforted for her children because they are no more. So in the midst of this prophecy of, of the future, he says something, he begins to talk about something that, that's going to happen uh, in the, their immediate future that's going to be a time of mourning. Now, Ramah is a village in the territory of Benjamin, just eight miles north of Jerusalem. It was located close to the main north-south highway through, through Israel. Now, here's what's important. It was the site where the captives were to be assembled for exile after the fall of Jerusalem. So when the Babylonians came in, the captives were taken to this, this place, and they were assembled there for exile, to be taken into Babylon. So, in this verse, in Jeremiah 31.15, Jeremiah is focusing on the anguish of an Israelite mother for the loss of her children during the Babylonian invasion, which led to their exile, which was brought about because of their sin and because of their lack of faithfulness toward God. Now, Earlier, when, we, when Matthew quoted Hosea 11.1, 1, we saw that he was focus, focusing on God's covenant faithfulness despite Israel's sin and faithlessness. Now, Jeremiah depicts the bitter end when their sin and faithlessness bring them to utter ruin and exile into Babylon. But there's a grand backdrop to all of this. God's great faithfulness. His faithfulness which will turn their great mourning into joy. Remember, I just read that. His faithfulness which will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. Now there's an even greater reality given in Jeremiah 31, and I want you to get this connection. This, this is so important. Remember, I keep saying covenant, covenant, covenant. Well, if you're a student of Scripture, you know what Jeremiah 31 is. And if you're not, that's okay because I'm going to teach you. 
Look down at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And as I read this, I want you to think about God's covenant faithfulness in as we were reminded about what's happening here uh, with, with what, the backdrop of what's happening and the sorrow that they're about to go through. Jeremiah 31, 31. And remember Hosea, as a matter of fact, as well. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his own neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin to them... And there's then I will to them, um, I got, from the least to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, I, I will remember no more. Sorry for getting tongue-tied. I just get excited. Beloved, what's happening in Matthew is he's tying Jesus' overnight flight to Egypt and the subsequent slaughter of the Bethlehem children together with God's promise to ultimately deliver His people. He will do this through the Messiah, who is none other than the babe in Mary's arms as they leave that faithful night to go to Egypt and safety from the maniacal King Herod. In the words of one commentator, the tears of the exile are now being fulfilled. The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived and He will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Now you may be asking, are you really sure that Matthew has all this in mind when he quotes Hosea and Jeremiah? I mean, it's just two little quotes, right? Out of Egypt I will call my son, and he speaks of this, Jeremiah 31, 15. It's two small quotes. Yes. Yes. He does. He absolutely does. You see, Matthew knew his Scripture. Matthew knew the implication of those two verses. Matthew knew all of what I just said and probably much, much more. He knew that God had promised a new covenant and that that new covenant would be in the blood of Christ. He knew all of this. And he made that connection, and he made that connection when he quoted those two verses. Just a little lesson. We have to understand that when a New Testament writer quotes a verse from the Old Testament, he's assuming that the reader understands the entire context of that verse. So it's heavy lifting. It's heavy lifting. You have to be a student of the Word. You need to be a student of the Word. And I pray that if you're not, you'll become one. In this case, 
Matthew's invoking the memory of God's covenant promises with the, tra- the tragedy of sin as a backdrop. Herod's sin, Israel's sin. God will protect the son. And out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, this is all about the question is, uh, you know, are you responding like Joseph and Mary? Well, we can't, uh, we can't know what Joseph and Mary understood about these things when they left for Egypt. We can't. But we do know this. They obeyed the Lord. They didn't question Him. When they received the command from the angel, they immediately believed and obeyed. Jesus' life seemingly hung in the balance, yet the Father protected Him in every way. An amazing moment. R.C. Sproul captures the mystery of this moment. Jesus was not only Mary and Joseph's son, He was also Mary and Joseph's Lord. Just just imagine for a moment being in Joseph and Mary's shoes. This grand drama is being played out. You're nothing more than a young man and a young woman trying to find your way in this world. You're minding your own business. You're nothing compared to the the rich and powerful Herod and those who sought to, to destroy Christ or the Lord Jesus. Yet God protects you and, and, and God uses you in an amazing way. Kit, our Kit Hughes puts it this way. Joseph and Mary capsulize the mystery of grace. The king does not come to the proud and powerful, but to the poor and powerless. Church, over these past few weeks, we've considered four responses to the arrival of King Jesus. There's been the response of the unwelcome and worshipful Magi. There's been the response of the unhappy and wicked King Herod. There's been the response of the unworthy and worthless Jewish leadership. There's been the response of the uncompromising and withstanding Joseph and Mary. We've considered four different responses. Let me give you the truth. They can be boiled down to two responses. Two responses. Either you bow your knee to worship Him as your Lord and Savior, or you shake your fist in utter rejection. You see, Herod and the leaders, the Jewish leaders, they were no different. They rejected him. They rejected him. They refused to bow the knee to the true king. The Magi and Joseph and Mary, they had the same response. They bowed their knee to worship him. You see, these responses, they don't depend upon your background. You could be Jew, you could be Gentile. You could be black, you could be white, you could be any color in between. Your response to King Jesus doesn't depend upon your station in life. Your response depends upon whether you've bowed the knee to the great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. We, I read this often because I love this ver- these verses. Because they say so much about who God is, who Christ is. For this reason also, this is Philippians 2, 9-11, for this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in the earth and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, will, will Herod confess? Yes. Not in, a, not in a saving way. But he will confess it. Will those Jewish leaders confess? Yes. They will confess and they will bow their knee. Not in a saving way. At least not all of them. If you're here today and you have not bowed your knee to the true King, the true King, King Jesus, I beg you to do so today. I beg you to respond in obedience and worship, just like the Magi, respond in obedience and worship to the one true God and King. I beg you to turn from your sin. I beg you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I beg you to trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. As Keith as Keith preached last week, there are two paths, right? Two paths. If you, if you have trusted in Him, if you do believe in Him, if you've been saved, then I urge you to walk in obedience just like Joseph and Mary. I started this out in my pre-sermon comments by talking about trials and difficulties. Consider Joseph and Mary, who truly walked through the valley of the shadow of death as they left, as they left Bethlehem with baby Jesus and Herod was on, his, on, on their heels. Uh, they were fleeing uh, death, probably certain death. They were obedient. They were obedient. They drew near to him. And I beg you, to worship Him just like the Magi. Just like the Magi did. I beg you, as a believer in Christ, walk in obedience and worship. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. As we've considered Your covenant faithfulness, Lord, we see it so clearly as we consider your word. Lord, I pray that we would not respond like Herod or the Jewish leadership in rejection of the one true king, but that we would respond like the Magi and like Joseph and Mary in obedience and worship that we would bow our knee to you, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would love one another, and that we would trust in you with all our lives. In Christ's name, amen.